I think the Bible is, is essentially like a unified story about God's refusal to revoke his invitation for us to come home. Because like he's been given a lot of reason, right, to revoke that invitation, but he refuses to. And every time, man, it, you read the Bible, every time it looks really bad, every time God's love for his people is, is incredibly tested because of their disobedience, uh, we, we see that even though he's frustrated and even though he gets upset, like he eventually would relent, right? He would relent from his disappointment, his pain, his anger, and he would eventually step in and rescue his people. Like it, it's a story of second chances here. Like what you did then doesn't define you. What your past looks like isn't what God is gonna use to determine uh, whether he uses you or not. I always like to say this, that God never consults with your past to determine your future. I wanna encourage you that masterfully woven throughout its pages, there is a massive theme being communicated over and over and over again from cover to cover that no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've drifted, no matter how bad the situation is, the door isn't closed, the light is still on, and you could always come home. We are finishing off a uh, collection of messages that we have been in over the last month or so uh, called Make It Make Sense, uh, where each week we have been uh, really just acknowledging uh, the many complexities around the Bible, uh, which make it very difficult for us to uh, feel very confident in our ability to understand what it's trying to tell us, you know? Uh, how many of y'all know that reading the Bible is one thing, but understanding it is another? Can I get a good amen, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people feel this way about the Bible, actually, you know? Um, and I think as a result, tragically, you know, they, they decide to set it aside and not engage with it um, all that often. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people over the years who uh, make a genuine attempt to want to engage with the Bible and... Uh, and quickly get lost in sort of the deep woods of Leviticus and the sacrificial system or Old Testament genealogies or the ancient Near Eastern cultural nuances and quickly lose interest um, and, and, and assume that, you know, it's just like scholars, theologians, and pastors that can really understand this daunting book. I don't know, have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that way about the Bible? Honestly, like you ever, you ever just felt like the Bible was pretty difficult to understand? And at the same time, felt like you really needed it to speak to you somehow. And that's the tension we feel, right? Like, like you read it and you're like, I'm not sure I really get it, but I just know that, that this Bible is supposed to communicate to me. It's supposed to speak to me somehow. I think that a lot of how we feel about the Bible is influenced by the fact that, you know, it's this large library of ancient books written over thousands of years. It's large, it's intimidating. Uh, the, the language that is used or the style it's written in, you know, the cadence, the syntax, like it's all kind of like uh, so different than maybe how we communicate and talk now. And so you're like, I'm not sure like what that word even means. And, um, you know, it's set in these ancient sort of hard to understand cultures. It's confusing, cryptic, boring, all those kinds of things. And yet, like, I think we all know this, that like Christians have long believed that the Bible is God's way, main way of uh, communicating with the world. And so, so while all of that is true, that the Bible is like, is all of those things that we mentioned, all those com complex things, it, it still doesn't change the fact that like Christians have long believed that it's the primary way that, that God intends to communicate, you know, with, with the world. Um, let me uh, uh, have you think about it this way. Like, what if everything in the Bible, everything, was a part of a bigger story, like, like including all the, all the confusing, uh, offensive, difficult things. What if everything was a part of a bigger story? And what if you could 
summarize all of Scripture in a way that would help you to not only understand God's story, but also your story. And if the Bible is really God's primary way of communicating with the world, shouldn't we try to figure out what it says and how it works? You know? I think that part of the reason why the Bible is so difficult for for so many people to read is I think that a lot of people have have read the Bible without seeing, you know, the greater theme or the meta-narrative that exists behind, you know, every story, every prophecy, every letter, every poem, every biography, and how they all fit into this this, this big story that communicates God's relentless love for humanity, really. And so that's what we've been talking about in this, in this series, because I think we all kind of understand, like, the, the, and, and maybe all relate to this idea that, you know, we have read the Bible and been like, man, I don't get it. Like, can someone make it make sense, please? Right? And, and so I want to kind of jump into this, because if you've, if you've been a part of this series so far, you know that, like, we've been kind of talking about how uh, the Bible is essentially like broken out into like four major categories. Let me, let me uh, show you what I mean. From cover to cover, the story of Scripture can best be understood in four simple phrases that are repeated over and over throughout its pages. These four phrases, I love you, I'm with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. See, I believe that, that just about everything you read in Scripture can fit into one of these categories. Into, into one of these phrases. In week one, we talked about this idea that like God is communicating throughout Scripture that he loves you. Like, like, I mean, it's like a reckless love. It's a relentless love, right? We talked also in, in week two uh, about how he communicates from cover to cover that he's with us, that we're not alone. And, and, and you know, think about how comforting that really is, that the God of the universe is with you. You are not alone. And then last week, we talked about this idea that there is this this invitation, not that really this command, this invitation by God to step into a life that is not dominated by fear. Today I want to uh, wrap the series up and I want to talk about this idea that throughout Scripture there is a theme that is woven of this idea that you can come home. You can come home. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says this He says, Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I love this this verse. I love this idea. Maybe you've learned this scripture in a different translation where Jesus says, remain in me and I'll remain in you, or abide in me and I'll abide in you. But I love the message here. Make your home in me. That's really what he's saying. Make your home in me. I just want to encourage you, man, if the Bible has ever been difficult for you to understand, I want, you to under, I want to encourage you that masterfully woven throughout its pages, there is a massive theme being communicated over and over and over again from cover to cover that no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've drifted, no matter how bad the situation is, the door isn't closed, the light is still on, and you could always come home. This is the idea of, of, of Scripture, right? Like, like it's never as bad as you think it is. It's never as far gone as, as you've been convinced to believe it is, like you can always come home. Look at this thought. I think the Bible is, is essentially like a unified story about God's refusal to revoke his invitation for us to come home. Because like he's been given a lot of reason, right, to revoke that invitation, but he refuses to. And every time, man, it, you read the Bible, every time it looks really bad, you know, um, every time God's love for his people is, is incredibly tested because of their disobedience, uh, we, we see that even though he's frustrated and even though he gets upset, like he eventually would relent, right? 
He would relent from his disappointment, his pain, his anger, and he would eventually step in and rescue his people. Every time someone disobeyed him or sinned in a horrific way, God in his grace and God in his love offered them a second chance. Why? Because with God, you can always turn around and come home. Always, every single time. There is just something about home, about coming home to the Father. I like what Maya Angelou says. She says, the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Doesn't this resonate with you? Like the, the, the ache for home, it lives in all of us. And it's just my belief that, that deep within the human condition and story is a longing to come home. It's a longing to come home to come home to the place where the pressures all kind of stop, where you're loved for who you are, not what you do, the place where you belong, the place where you don't have to like perform and seek everybody's approval, the place where you can rest and you can be fully restored. Man, I remember growing up, uh, spending time with my grandparents. I remember uh, going through some junior high and high school years that, that maybe weren't the best. And uh, I remember spending some time sitting next to my grandma as she was sitting in her her recliner uh, chair and, and her just communicating to me, Jordan, like there's nothing you could ever do that, that would get me to stop loving you. There's nothing you could ever do. And I, I don't know how many of us have experienced relationships like that because it feels like the majority of the relationships we have do have conditions. And I just remember the profound like impact that had on me at, at, at a young age, like there's nothing I could ever do. In other words, like she's saying, hey, like you always have family here. Like you can always come home. And for those of you old enough to remember uh, The Wizard of Oz, you might remember that down in Kansas, a tornado comes and tears Dorothy from her home. And when the storm finally calms down, she realizes what? That she's not in Kansas anymore, right? Uh, she has been transported to the land of Oz. And the premise of the movie is Dorothy's journey along the yellow brick road to see The Wizard of Oz so that she can find out how to get back home. What's interesting about the movie is that for all of her adventures and the friends she meets along the way, Dorothy possesses this like deep longing to return to her home in Kansas. In fact, in the final scene of the movie, spoiler alert, but you've had decades to watch it, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been around longer than I've been alive. So uh, in the final scene of the movie, Dorothy famously clicks her heels together and repeats these words. There's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. And poof, right, she's back in her own bedroom. There's no place like home. Many of you know that I grew up in Arizona and uh, grew up in the Phoenix area, uh, in, in a suburb of Phoenix called Chandler. And the past year, um, or so, I've ha I had the opportunity um, to go visit my old stomping grounds and specifically drive my, by my childhood home. My wife and I took a week down there earlier this year, or last year, and um, it was, a, it was a, a profound experience. You know, I no longer have family living down there. Uh, you know, there's not a ton of reason for me to go down there anymore or natural reason for me to go down there other than like, an, like a planned trip. We're going to go see where I'm from. Um, and so I hadn't been back to the area since 2008 because so much of my family has moved away. And as I was down there, we were driving around and it was all so familiar and I was just filled with emotion. Uh, filled with emotion because there's no place like home, is there? And I remember Lindsay and I kind of uh, sitting in the car on the street, 
um, staring at the home that I grew up in. And, you know, it, it obviously looked a little older. Uh, the basketball hoop was still there that my brother and I used to battle each other on. Uh, I, actually, I actually had this thought, like, I'd love for Lindsay to take a picture of me, like, hanging on the rim. And then I realized there's two problems with that. One, it's like a rim that's over 30 years old. And I'm not sure, like, if it would break or whatever. And then I'd be dealing with the homeowner. And it'd be awkward because, uh, hey, this used to be my house, uh, but now it's yours. Um, and then I thought, I realized maybe the bigger issue was that my days of hanging on the rim are, like, far behind me, you know. Um, and so we just decided to stare at it instead. And then, um, man, we drove around. Uh, we were able to drive by some uh, schools that I attended, um, elementary school, junior high, high school, all of that. We ate at some favorite restaurants and places that I had remembered. I was just overwhelmed with re- emotion because it all just felt so familiar. And, um, and there's something about, you know, kind of being transplanted. And, and while, you know, my family is here, this is home uh, with them, like, th- there's still been a part of me throughout these, these last couple of decades that's just felt a little detached from home, um, because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up here, and, and I just remember being down there, feeling this sense of longing, this sense or sense of belonging, this sense of home, uh, because there's really no place like it. I tell you all that, give you all of that, just because I believe that the entire story of the Bible really speaks to this same idea that there's no place like home. In fact, look at this thought. I think that the idea of coming home is key to understanding the story of the Bible. Isaiah 53 verse six says this. It's, uh, famously, it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the transgressions, the sins of us all. I love this verse for a lot of reasons. Like, you know, you'll hear a good preacher use it like at an altar call or something, you know, and it's an old famous Billy Graham verse that he would pull out at a crusade. But, you know, it, it communicates every single one of us has strayed. Every single one of us, right? Like we've left the pen, like the sheep have left the pen, which is why I love John 10 that communicates that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And he is also the gate, meaning he, like through him, only through him can you come home, can you come back into the pen. Uh, Jesus has come to lead us all back home and we've all strayed. Let me just say it this way, um, if you're taking notes this morning, I think that the entire biblical narrative is framed around our loss of home and our eventual return to it. It's bookended by this thought. In Genesis, the the Bible opens with the the Garden of Eden. It's this place of harmony and peace where the tree of life flourished. Uh, In Eden, God enjoys this very close and intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. Like, we we understand that. And then sadly, in Genesis 3, very very early on in the Bible, sin enters into the world through the disobedience of, uh, of Adam and Eve, and what happens? They immediately just decide to hide from God. Like, they understand intuitively, like, something has happened. We did something we shouldn't. Something has happened, and I, I, I instead of running to God, I want to hide from him. There's something very profound just in that reaction alone, and, and, and I would just say it like this, that shame will always cause you to feel uncomfortable around God. Shame will always cause you to feel uncomfortable around God. That's what it does. That's the point of shame. Uh, makes you feel uncomfortable around God, makes you feel uncomfortable around other people, you know? Um, That's what shame does. And kind of like what I talked about last week about how fear doesn't come from God, you got to understand that shame doesn't come from God either. Shame is not something that God gives you. Shame is a tactic of the enemy to convince us that God is mad at us, that we're no longer welcome home. Sin produces shame in us, and shame causes us to hide. It makes it awkward for us to be around God until that shame or that sin is dealt with. 
And so the story goes on and it continues, right, that now that sin has come into the world, this desired relationship that God wants with creation and with humanity is broken and it's unable to stay the same. It can't remain the same. And what that does is it reveals to us the damaging effects that sin really has on all of us, uh, especially at a, on a spiritual level. And, and so then the story goes on, right, that, that, that Adam and Eve are then removed from the Garden of Eden, which was their home. And so the entirety of the Bible, right, the, the, the story, it, it's about, it's about our, our loss of home and our eventual return to it. And we see this in Genesis, like the loss of, the, of home. And so look at this thought, like after the garden, okay, the Bible tells a story of God looking for a way to bring us back home. But not back home to a location, right? Back home to a relationship. Because for Adam and Eve, home wasn't so much about uh, the garden as it was the type of relationship that they had enjoyed with God. Home was, was that kind of interaction and close relationship with God. It was the walking with him in the cool of the day. And so we see from, from Genesis all the way then through Revelation, this idea of God doing what he can, God working to bring us back home to restore what was lost in the garden. So from this point in the Bible in Genesis, we start to see just like, like so many, you know, like stories, so many examples of like God wanting us to come home. We, we see story after story, time after time, the people of Israel essentially like they leave home and then they come home. They leave home and then they come home again. It's repeated all throughout their story, the history of the Israelite people in the book of Exodus and, and through the Old Testament. We see them, you know, repeatedly uh, leaving home and then coming home, being, leaving home thinking it's better and then going like, oops, like we're in captivity again. We should probably, we should probably like call out to God and he'll rescue us again. Um, as you read the Bible, man, it is so full of, of, of second, third, fourth, fifth chances that God in his grace and in his mercy just gives to his people because, man, he just wants them to come home. He just wants them to come home. And I tell you all that because I think that so much of, of the story of like the Israelite people is our story. I think it's interesting how home can be the safest place for us to be, and yet it can also feel so far away. Like, I don't know how to get from here to there. And a lot of times we think that because of maybe the things we've done or the agreements we've made or the lies we've believed, that coming home doesn't feel like an option for us, and yet God is always there. He's always ready, looking to give us another chance. When you read the full sweep of Scripture, you read about the Israelites, you read, read about them, like you read about them in Isaiah, Right? You read about them in, in, in many different places, in Jeremiah. You read about them in Ezekiel. You read about the, the, um, the allegory story of Hosea and his wife, right? and who, who was a, a prostitute and would continue to leave him. And he would always go and try to find her and do what? Bring her home. It's, it's, a, it's a picture. That whole book of Hosea is a picture of God and the Israelite people, God and us always trying to get us to come home. But then you read other stories, like you read about Moses, and Moses is this man who, who uh, does amazing things for God, but like early in his story, he's a prince of Egypt, and he murders an Egyptian soldier, runs away from Egypt and uh, into the wilderness, ends up building a whole new life for himself until God one day speaks to him through a burning bush and calls him back into his greatness, calls him back into his destiny, and sends him to go be the deliverer of God's people to take them out of slavery in Egypt and to bring them into the wilderness and eventually up to the edge of the promised land. Like, it's a story of second chances here. 
Like what you did then doesn't define you. What your past looks like isn't what God is gonna use to determine uh, whether he uses you or not. I always like to say this, that God never consults with your past to determine your future. In fact, you look at story after story, you, you, you read about like King David, and he's one, he's one of the classic examples we could, we could see on this, where you know, he, he is a man who is known as one after God's own heart. He deeply loves the Lord. He's a man of worship. Like, like uh, we see him dancing before the Lord, like, like undignified before him. And then we see some, some not so great things where he, he does commit adultery and then he uh, is responsible for murdering the husband of the woman that he is committing an affair with. Like that's not good press like for anyone, let alone like the man of God or the, the king of God's people. But God continues to use David. He, he still like, like is someone who God redeems and he rescues and uses again. You see Jonah as a man who is, is uh, called by God to go to Nineveh and he's like, absolutely not. And he goes and runs in the complete opposite direction towards Tarshish. God come, you know, comes upon this boat in this huge storm and Jonah gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by, by a big old fish. And there in the middle of that fish, he repents. He cries out to God. He basically asks God, if there's any chance, you could still use me. And what happens? Like the, the fish like throws Jonah up onto dry land and Jonah uh, is given a second chance to step into his destiny, into his greatness that God has for him. And he goes and does amazing things. Uh, he messes up a couple other times, but he eventually you know, kind of gets it figured out. And then, and then you get into the New Testament. I'm giving you like just a few, right? It's literally everywhere in the Bible. But like, you know, you read about Peter in the New Testament where he denies Jesus three times. You know, uh, like, like how would you like that? Like on, on, on the night of Jesus' life where he like needs you most, like you're nowhere to be found. You're thinking about yourself. It's all about self-preservation. And he's like, I don't know the man. I never, I've never heard of him. And, and, and then we see, you know, uh, weeks later, we see Jesus visit uh, to uh, visit Peter while Peter has gone back to fishing because he's pretty sure that's all he can do now because uh, he's blown it so big. We see Jesus restore him and he becomes the rock on which the church was built. Like the movement of the church in the first century is in many ways powered by Peter and Paul and the apostles, but Peter is the leader of that movement. And then, you know, a classic story is when Jesus is on the cross uh, at his crucifixion and there's these two guys crucified next to him. They're both thieves. One, uh, looks over to Jesus and he says, he says, he says, Lord, you know, remember me when you when when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you the truth. On this day, on this very day, you'll be with me. Where? In paradise. You'll be with me in my home. I'll take you to my Father. You'll be with me. Literally, every person in the Bible is a recipient of multiple chances, like over and over and over again. And, and a second chance is is very similar to this idea of like coming back home. Like you've blown it. It's not great. Like, I get it, you didn't do it right, like, but look, that, that doesn't define you. That's not your whole story. You can always return home. It's kind of like my grandma communicated to me, it doesn't matter what you do. Like, you always got family here. There's nothing you could ever do that would cause me to love you any less than I love you now. And then, you know, so that's like, like all the stuff in the middle. But, and, and then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it ends with, with this home that we have lost, then finally restored, uh, as it's called, a new heaven and a new earth the place where the tree of life then flourishes once again. So you see how this theme is kind of bookended. What I want to do, Ken, maybe, maybe for the rest of our morning together, is, is, just, is just speak to what I believe is a story that sits at like the hinge of this theme in Scripture. This theme of coming home. 
It's a story that I think is perhaps the greatest and most famous story that Jesus ever told. It's in Luke chapter 15. And we know this story as the, the story of the prodigal son. Right? You familiar with this? It's the word prodigal is a word that is basically used for anyone who sort of goes off the rails and blows up their life. Uh, it's a term that we don't just use in church and in Christian circles. It's a term that is used like really everywhere uh, in reference to somebody who has kind of just you know, gone crazy or, or decided to rebel in, 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 a, in a major way. Oh, that's the prodigal, right? That's the prodigal. So this story that Jesus tells us of the prodigal son, and I know a lot of you are familiar with it, I want to spend some time in it this morning because I think it really encapsulates the entirety of the gospel for sure. But I also think it's a story that encapsulates the entire story of the Bible as well. Like what the Bible is trying to communicate from cover to cover. Like, like this idea of, of, of being able to come home. And so Luke chapter 15, verse 1 uh, it says this in the New Living. Uh, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. First of all, I love that about Jesus. If you've ever felt like you couldn't approach Jesus, right? If you ever felt like Adam and Eve and you had all this shame, like you couldn't come to God, let me just tell you right here, like this is the kind of God we serve right here who is accessible to you know, tax collectors and notorious sinners. They came to him to hear him teach. But because of that, in verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Right? So the religious leaders were like, man, does he even understand who he's associating with? And so what happens here in verse 1 and 2, Jesus is basically asked by the Pharisees, like, why do you hang out with bad people? <laughs> right? Why do you hang out with bad people? In fact, if we were to kind of like, like, like modernize this text, verse 2 uh, into sort of like today's language, it, it might read something kind of like this. Uh, if you want to pop that next slide up there, it might read like, hey, this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with liberal Democrats and LGBTQ activists, even eating with them. Or this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with conservative Republicans, alt-right leaders, and MAGA fanatics, even eating with them. Or this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with drug dealers and the sexually immoral, even eating with them. Okay, this is what's going on. Okay, this is what's happening here. And what I love about this, and I, like, I, think, I think the brilliance of this, the genius of Jesus, is that he had a way of welcoming people into his life that most of us just would not. He had a way of, of, of being able to be around like, like darkness, being around sin and not being influenced by it. You know why Jesus was never afraid of sin? Because he had a solution for it. He had a solution for it. Luke 15, 11, this story starts. So, so, this, so this chapter begins, Jesus tells three stories in, in Luke 15. He talks about the lost sheep, then he talks about the lost coin, and then he gets into this famous uh, sort of diatribe about the uh, prodigal son. And he says this in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, this is sort of a big deal. Like, you know, culturally speaking, this was an unthinkable request. Like, you don't, you don't do this. I mean, we don't do this today. I don't go up to my dad and be like, hey, like, I, I, know, I know you got something coming for me. I'd like it now. Like, you know, would you just give me my inheritance now? In fact, uh, uh, about... about 
a year and a half ago or so, my parents uh, were finally able to sell their house that they have had in, in Des Moines for, you know, 12 years since they became missionaries. And uh, I was really involved uh, in helping to get that thing sold. And uh, my brother and I, we had multiple conference calls with my parents trying to just talk about, is this a good deal? This is what we should do. And I was, uh, you know, the power of attorney on their, on their home to help get, get it all done. But uh, we had all these conference calls and uh, kind of figured out what their proceeds would be. And, uh, and my brother, uh, it's always got to be the brother, right? He, uh, he asks my dad, he says, hey, is there any, any chance we could just get our inheritance now? <laughs> like, is there any, any way we could get our inheritance now? So uh, unthinkable request, right? Uh, you can't, can't be doing that. So this, we don't do this kind of stuff even today. Um, but like, man, back then, this, was, this wasn't even a thought in anyone's mind. Essentially, the younger son sees his father's wealth and he wants it now. He doesn't want to wait for his father to die. He wants to start living his life the way he wants to live it now. And for Jesus' audience, right, respect for one's father was a really big deal, especially in a first century patriarchal society. Uh, This is paramount to their culture. The patriarch is a big, big, big deal that you honor, that you respect. And so picture this younger son coming to his father, requesting his inheritance from a father who was still healthy, uh, not close to dying. This is like him saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Hey, Dad, I'm eager for you to die because then I can have what's coming to me. That's basically what he's saying to his dad. And so his dad decides, yeah, all right, you want it that bad, I'll give it to you. So he divides his estate, his wealth between his, his, his two sons. It says in verse 13 that a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted his money in, uh, all his money in wild living. So you can just imagine what he did. Everything you can imagine, he did. While living, everything, everything possible, he goes and he squanders his wealth like very quickly, uh, just like anyone who comes into uh, unearned wealth. Uh, you know, statistically, you know, they talk about those who earn or, or win the lottery, how quickly it goes, right? Because it wasn't really earned. They don't know how to handle it. This is what's going on with the prodigal son as well. I like the uh, New English Bible that says it this way. It says, a few days later, the younger son turned the whole of his share into cash. So think about what that means. Like, not only is the younger son asking for his inheritance, but he's also selling his share of the family farm. Right? I mean, the heartbreak the family is experiencing is like this issue is no longer private. It's no longer just within the family. It's become public information as the family is forced to sell off part of their estate now so that this son can, can liquidate his asset and go and spend it on whatever he, he wants. The story goes on in verse 14. It says, about the time his money ran out, There was a great famine that swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now I want you just to remember again the setting of the story. Like it's a big, big, big deal here to not lose track of this because you know this this is uh, an audience full of first century Jewish people and in their culture, Right? You, you don't even touch pigs, let alone eat pigs. And so they're hearing this story of what's going on, and they're understanding the desperation that's happening with this young, uh, younger son because he is so desperate to the point that, man, even what is being fed to the pigs uh, is, is appetizing to him, and he wishes he could eat it, but he can't. In verse 17, it says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare And here I am dying of hunger. He says, I will go home to my father 
and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. It's a really interesting uh, uh, chunk of scripture here. It says that when, when the prodigal son came to his senses, that's a big thought here. Like something about him sort of woke up. He realized, hey, I thought life was gonna be a whole lot better than this. And he's, a, he's essentially at rock bottom. And it says at rock bottom, he came to his senses. But you notice that when he came to his senses, he had food on his mind, not his sins. And even though he has prepared an apology for his father, he was not really motivated to come home because, because of this love for his father. He's motivated to come home because of his hunger. He doesn't return home because of a renewed love for his dad. He comes back home simply to survive because he ran out of money and he's now starving. He's hungry, he's alone, he wants a good meal, he wants a place to sleep. This is really important to think about here because he rehearses this apology. He's gonna, he's gonna share this to his dad, with his dad, but his motivation for returning is just simply because he's, he's hungry. I think it's important for us to remember that like, the quality of our words uh, is not what gets us back to the Father. It's, it's when our heart turns and comes back towards home that gets us back to the Father. It's not about what you say. It's not about the rehearsed speech. It's not having like the nicest words and, uh, put together. It's about your heart turning and saying, I gotta come home to the Father. You see, look at this thought. Sometimes coming back home is a, re- is a recognition that this is the place where we can survive and hopefully find joy and peace we long for. And I think that's really what's going on here. I don't know that he's expecting a whole lot more than just like, I just need like a roof and I need, I need a meal. It says in verse 20 that it says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still, catch this, a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And, and the father just, just, just kind of cuts him off right there. He doesn't even let him get all the words out of his mouth. And he just, he says, like, forget about it. He says, my son who was lost is now found. He was gone and now he's home. He says, we're gonna throw a party. Like everybody, call the neighbors, right? We're gonna, we're gonna kill like the fatted calf. We're gonna like get, get after it tonight and have a good time. I'm gonna put a ring on his finger that signifies authority. I'm gonna put a robe around him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure he's all cleaned up because my son who was lost has now found. He's now come home. I think this is a parable, honestly, that has much more to do with the father than it has to do with the son. In fact, I think that this parable has probably been um, mistitled uh, for, for, for generations. I think it would be more properly titled the parable of the good father rather than the parable of the prodigal son because it has way more to do with the father. The, the father joyfully and extravagantly welcomes his son home. And it's just, uh, it's just, it's just amazing to see this. But do you notice that the father's love for his son is not a result of the son's confession? You notice that? Like the father's love was predetermined before the forgiveness was requested. Before before the son ever had a chance to get these words out of his mouth and have this face-to-face with his father, the father saw his son a long way off and he, he began to run towards him. He sprinted in his direction. His love for his son was not the result of the son finally coming to his senses and, and, and giving him the apology that he deserved. And we know this is, this is the gospel, right? We know this. We know that Paul writes about this and tells us that while we were still sinners, right, while we were unconfessed and unrepentant sinners, that Christ loved us enough to die for us, 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we see that the prodigal son returns to his father, and, and it's interesting, he, he's, he returns with this hope to just maybe be a servant. It's really all he thought he was worthy of, and, and uh, he says, hey, if I just came home as a servant, maybe I would be allowed, allowed to be around the estate again. And, but the father sees him, runs to him, and restores him to his rightful position as a son, as a son. Man, I wonder how many people have believed the lies of guilt and shame over the years that come from like where they've been, that come from like their past and maybe bad decisions or embarrassing stories of their past. And, um, and so when they return home to the father, they return with the mindset of a servant and not to their position as a son or a daughter. I wonder how many of us have like, like kind of lived out that reality as well. The son never expected to be welcomed home. He didn't expect that. He was hoping to be accepted as a servant. Look at this, this, this big thought here. I, I, the prodigal son wanted to return home as a servant because he had a distorted image of himself. He saw himself as unworthy to return as a son and barely worthy enough to return as a servant. Next slide. The good father sees us differently than we see ourselves. You see that? The good father sees us differently than we see Ourselves. And one of the big lies that I think so many people believe, believe is that their worth is based on what they've done instead of who they are. Your worth before God, it's not based on what you have done or have not done. It's based on who you are. And you are his son. You are his daughter. You are a part of his family. You see, one of the great goals of our spiritual enemy is to talk us out of our inheritance as sons and daughters so that we will only relate to God as servants. And that's a distortion of the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with him. I think this is why a lot of people kind of have this, this uh, uh, you know, very, very distant, sort of separated experience with God because they, they don't know how to, how to get past maybe some of the things they've done. And they, they just think, man, all I'm, I'm really worthy of is to just be his servant. How could I ever be his son or his daughter again? Slaves and servants don't have a relationship with the master, and they certainly don't have an inheritance from the master you know, a servant has to work for approval. A son just inherits position and influence. They inherit access and they inherit favor. Many people, I think, struggle to, to, to accept their full forgiveness in Christ because grace is such a humbling concept that it's hard to get into the marrow of our spiritual bones, isn't it? It can be hard to enjoy the gift of grace because we're not sure that, like, like how, how to understand, like, why did you give this to me? I sure, surely don't deserve it. Man, and this is never more true than when we still struggle with sin after we've come to faith. And we're like, man, I don't deserve, like I know better and I'm still doing these things. It's hard for us to believe that God's grace is truly free. Hard to believe we don't have to pay him back. Hard to believe that we get to stay in the family by grace and not by works. It's hard to believe that his grace is for us. And look at this. I think that so many people are stuck in the rehearsed speech of the prodigal son and still feel awkward at the table of grace. We find ourselves still trying to pay the Father back for our years of rebellion and sin. We find ourselves trying to be worthy, and as a result, we only see ourselves as servants and not as sons and daughters. And we've got, we've got to resolve this with the Lord once and for all, that no matter what it's looked like, he brings you back home. He brings you into his family. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God, look, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
It's all about what he's done, not about what you have done. I like what Brendan Manning says. He says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Nothing to earn it or deserve it. And so I just wanna wanna say this. I wanna close with this thought. I'm gonna have you watch a quick video and I'm gonna have the worship team go ahead and come up uh, during that, that video. But look at this thought. The Bible, I think, paints a grand picture of Jesus as our rescuer. But he also didn't just come to rescue us from our sin. He also came to bring us home. You know, like, like that's why he says, you know, I no longer call you my servants or my slaves, right? But I call you my friends. Like it's not, it, it, it's, it's a redefinition of our relationship with him. He came to bring us home as well. John 14, two, in my father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He says, I'm going to my father's house and I'm gonna come back and take you so you can be there with me. And then in verse 23 of that same chapter, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. All of scripture we see this threaded master narrative that you can come home. You can come home. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. The light is still on. The store, the door is still open. I want you to see this video. It's about five minutes long. And, um, and it kind of depicts the story we were just reading in the Bible. But as you watch this, uh, I, want, I want you just to, to let it get into your spirit that this video you're watching is basically telling like the, the meta-narrative of scripture. Like if you wanna understand the Bible, like this video is helping us to understand it. Um, you, you can go ahead and, uh, and, and watch this video. To Amanda, my beautiful daughter, about how God is always ready to give us a second chance. And he read that same story that I used to read you when you were younger, a story about a son who gets angry with his father, runs away, loses everything that he once loved. But then eventually the boy realizes what he's lost and he decides to go home. He's ashamed of what he's done. And when he arrives home, the father is there. The father is waiting for him. But before the boy can even get to the house, the father runs to him and embraces him, and he welcomes him back home. 
the child gets a second chance. The way it's written, it seems like, like he, even if the son never came home, the father would still have been waiting. That's how much he loved his child. I've been thinking a lot about this story lately. I don't know everything that's been going on these last few years. I know that you've been let down by others. I know that working three jobs was exhausting. I know that being a single mother was a huge responsibility. You may have felt like you were doing the best thing for Will when you left. Or maybe you didn't, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot more that I don't know. A lot of pain and hurt and pressure that you're feeling. I don't claim to understand it all, but I do know that I miss my daughter. And so does your little one. And so does your mother. I'd like to think that that, that story from the Bible that's us, me, and you. On the day you come home, I'll be there. I'll run out to you, and I'll hug you, and I'll throw the biggest party that you've ever seen. I would be endlessly happy for you to be home. But, I'm afraid it might not happen that way. The cancer is spreading in my lungs, and each day has become more and more difficult to endure. Part of why I'm writing this letter is just to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I might be gone before you return, but I still hope you do with or without me. It may not be easy. You may feel like you don't belong anymore. We don't always get the chance to fix all the things that get broken in life. There's a whole world of I'm sorry's that may never get spoken. We may not get to say all the goodbyes. And if I don't get to see you or smile again, if I don't get another chance to tell you you're beautiful, if I don't get to be there for Christmas dinner or to wrap the presents with the kids, if I'm not there, then I just want you to know one thing. The story is still true. You'll always be welcome home. Some people will give you a second chance, some might not, but I know Reverend Alberts was right. God will always give you a second chance. He will always be there, ready for you, waiting for you. And I'll do the same as long as I can. And if not, then I hope you get this letter. Know that I adore you. With love, Dad.
Would you stand? It was a great invitation from your heavenly Father to come home. One of the most famous invitations that Jesus ever gives comes to us in Matthew 11. I think it's an invitation to come home. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. There is an invitation from Jesus to just come home, to transfer maybe the burdens that we carry onto his shoulders and to take a much lighter uh, experience in, in life. I don't know where you're at today, but I, I can just imagine that there's some of us in here today who kind of need some of that burden to go. We need it to lift. We need to, uh, to, to hand it over to Jesus. That maybe there's been a, almost like an inappropriate uh, way that we have been carrying like the burdens of our life and it's not how God intended. And I just wanna invite you today to, to come home, man. Come to him. Transfer these burdens over to him and let him give you true rest. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? Just bow your heads for a moment. If you just are, are with us today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, like, like man, I, I just need a second chance. Like truly, like I just need a second chance. And I don't feel like I deserve it. I feel like this is maybe my 10th chance. I just don't, I know that I don't, I don't deserve it, but for whatever reason, like I, I, I feel right now that I, I've got to turn my heart towards home and I've got to start coming back towards the Father. Could I just see your hand today if that's who you need a second chance? You just know, I just need it. I just need another chance. God, I thank you that you don't, you don't give shame to us. I thank you that, that shame doesn't come from you. And so, Lord, I just pray right now over every person under the sound of my voice who is maybe battling with shame and guilt and condemnation, or maybe there has been just some, some struggles, uh, Lord, things getting in the way. And I just ask for freedom in Jesus' name that those things would go. And God, I pray that you would come and put your arms around, man, your kids who just raised their hand here this morning, those who are choosing to kind of turn back towards home. I pray that they would sense and feel and know and understand the, the love of the Father that still sees them while they're a long way off and sprints in their direction and says, I'm coming, I'll be right there, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming towards you. And Lord God, may we all just, just right now in this place just, just come into sort of a fresh awareness of that kind of love. I thank you, God that the invitation is always there for us to come home. We give you thanks and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.